This free State of Belief radio podcast is brought to you by Interfaith Alliance, representing 185,000 members across the U.S., drawn from 75 different faith traditions. We're committed to protecting faith and freedom. Find out about the work we do to protect the boundaries between religion and government and unite diverse voices to challenge extremism and build common ground by visiting our website, interfaithalliance.org. Whether you care deeply about minority religious rights, school bullying, LGBT discrimination, the influence of religion on politics, or the influence of politics on religion, Interfaith Alliance is working on initiatives you'll want to support. Learn more and become a member at interfaithalliance.org. From Interfaith Alliance, this is State of Belief Radio. I'm your host, Reverend Welton Gaddy. This week we're broadcasting from the Argo Studios in New York City. It's Christmas weekend. It's also the middle of Hanukkah. I hope you and your loved ones are enjoying a wonderful holiday season. Religion is always in the control business, and that's something people don't really understand. It's it's in the guilt-producing control business. And if you have heaven as a place where you're rewarded for your goodness and hell as a place where you're punished for your evil, then you sort of have control of the population. For decades, one of the leading voices in progressive religion has belonged to Episcopal Bishop John Shelby Spong. As an ordained faith leader, the now-retired bishop led the Diocese of Newark for over 10 years. But he's well-known way beyond geographic and denominational boundaries, known for his prolific writing and appearances, Today, at age 80, Bishop Spong continues to travel and speak widely. He's just released his latest book, Reclaiming the Bible for a Non-Religious World. And he'll be joining us on this edition of State of Belief. But first... ...candidates appear to have divided on the issue of personal faith and religious... It's the world's fastest-growing religion. I'm Rick Perry. I'm not ashamed to talk about my faith. I do feel bad for... Many of the journalists who have attempted to cover the collision of religion and politics in this country over the past year, many just gave up. Many skimmed across the surface of stories that were, in truth, profoundly significant. One resource that consistently helps make sense of religion news and religion's impact on secular society is Religion News Service. We rely on RNS coverage daily. And we're very fortunate to be able to call upon Editor-in-Chief Kevin Ekstrom on a regular basis when events demand the depth and objectivity RNS offers. And as the whirlwind of events that we refer to as the year 2011 draws to a close, Kevin's back with us to review the annual Religion News Service Roundup of the most significant news stories of the year. Kevin Ekstrom, welcome back to State of Belief Radio. Thanks for having me back. You know, there have got to be easier years for assembling your year-end list. Most recent stories make it harder to establish a perspective on the events of an entire year, but I am perfectly willing to ask you to try. (laughs) (laughs) You're too kind. When you look at the sweep of religion news stories over the past year, 
Are there any broad themes that emerge? I think uh, I call this the year of taking it to the streets. Um, you know, we saw everywhere from Occupy Wall Street to the State House in Wisconsin over uh, unions uh, to Tahrir Square in Cairo. I mean, people were pretty ticked off uh, on any number of things. And this was the year where a lot of that really kind of coalesced and gelled into a people's movement. Now, obviously, Occupy Wall Street is a little bit different from toppling Hosni Mubarak in Cairo. Uh, but across the board, um, I think what we saw this year is uh, a lot of angst, a lot of disgust, actually, in a lot of places. And all of these movements that aren't really related are sort of uh, underscored by a common theme of uh, right and wrong. Mm -hmm. um, what is right? What do people want? How should governments treat uh, their citizens? How should um, institutions be held responsible? And basic questions of fairness, uh, economic fairness, political fairness. Are there stories from the past year, Kevin, that you were surprised didn't break through, even though you and your team saw them as particularly important? You know, I, I think the degree and the continuing degree of anti-Muslim sentiment, uh, we saw that this year, and, and it did get a, a decent amount of coverage. But what surprised me, and I think still catches people off guard when it pops up, is the persistence of it. Mm -hmm. uh, for example, you know, this year uh, we had the, the killing of Osama bin Laden, which was a big story. And a lot of people were quite happy about that. Uh, and there were some people who actually hoped and thought that, well, maybe with bin Laden gone as kind of this sinister figurehead, maybe uh, Muslims will get a little bit better, a better rap. And, mm -hmm. you know, there maybe discrimination will abate a bit. In, in fact, according to the polls, the opposite happened. And I think what it did was it dredged up a lot of bad memories that people have. And then, of course, with the TLC series, All American Muslim, uh, you know, I've seen the show. It's it's pretty benign. Uh, I mean, this is not a study of the Mujahideen or anything like that. I mean, it's this, this, these are rank and file Americans doing very everyday things, um, but they just look a little different than everybody else. And all of a sudden, you've got... Um, conservative groups in a frenzy that it's promoting you know, Sharia law and all these horrible things and forcing advertisers out. So the, the staying power, mm -hmm. I think, of anti-Muslim sentiment um, always sort of uh, catches me off guard, and a lot of other people, I think, too. The stories that have been outstanding in your mind this year, um, of them, how many of them will have a lasting impact? Uh, what stories are not likely going away? I think the the biggest example there is uh, the sex abuse scandal that we saw um, at Penn State, uh, but also in pretty severe fashion in segments of the Roman Catholic Church this year. Uh, we are creeping up. We're just two months shy of the 10th anniversary of the church sex abuse scandal kind of erupting in Boston back in uh, 2002. And it, at the time, it would have been hard to imagine that we'd still be talking about it in 2012. But here we are. Is it your sense that 
religion is is likely to continue being as widely misused for political purposes in the year ahead as it has been in 2011? Is religion going to be a wedge issue for major presidential candidates like it has been so far? Mm-hmm. Um, are conservatives going to uh, hold Newt Gingrich's Catholic conversion against mm-hmm. him? Mm-hmm. Um, Perhaps. Are they going to hold Mitt Romney's Mormonism against him? Perhaps. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and they, they likely will. I think um, what you're really seeing and have seen in recent weeks and months is a, a sort of a an internal skirmish within the Republican Party. You notice that you don't see as much of this on the Democratic side just because they're not um, as a religious a group as the Republicans. And conservative evangelicals hold a lot more sway Mm-hmm. in the Republican Party than they do in the Democratic Party. But what you're seeing is is uh, this is a fight over who gets to be conservative enough in the Republican right. Party and one of the um, – who, who's pure enough and who is good enough. Mm-hmm. And they have found out that religion is one of those uh, litmus test issues. Mm-hmm. And you've also seen candidates like Rick Perry – um, you know, come out and say, uh, I'm a church-going Christian, mm-hmm. and that's essentially uh, why you should vote for me. Um, yeah, are you going to see more of it? I think so. I think it probably will abate a little bit uh, the further we get away from the primary season. I think this is a lot of internal Republican um, fight over um, who gets to uh, drive the bus. You know, I couldn't document this, but I think uh, that history would say that religion stays a a big factor uh, up until about the time of the conventions, and there's some uh, good bit of religion there, and then that subject begins to wane as other pressing issues come about. I happen to think that we're going to see uh, Obama's Christianity reevaluated again, and we're going to see probably some more of the Obama is a Muslim kind of assertions. Uh, so I think it's a, it's a bipartisan offense. Right. And I think, you know, it, it will be interesting to watch the president uh, in the next year as he's running for a second term, because one of the things I noticed in sort of looking back over the year is um, when he has talked about religion, he has talked about it in a much more personal way. Uh, than he was a couple years ago. And we really started seeing this just about a year ago uh, when he lit the national Christmas tree in 2010. So, mm-hmm. And he talked about the birth of the Savior, and he's referred to Michelle and I as Christians. Mm-hmm. And that was sort of the public rollout of Obama's personal faith on the, on the public stage. But you saw it a lot more this year uh, at the National Prayer Breakfast. He talked about uh, I don't care what people say about my faith. My faith is genuine. Mm-hmm. And at Easter, he talked about finding salvation at the foot of the cross. I mean, mm-hmm. very explicit Christian terminology uh, that you didn't always hear from him, but you've heard more from him. And now, is that a political move, or is he just more comfortable in his skin? I don't know. But mm-hmm. I think what the White House has learned is that if you don't define yourself, you allow others to define you. Right. And and I should be clear that that it doesn't bother me at all that religion gets used to define an individual. It just shouldn't be used as the quality of an individual that would cause voters to accept that candidate rather than others. 
Absolutely. Uh, well, Kevin, uh, take a guess, if you will, what issues are we likely going to be looking at a lot in the year to come? There's, uh, it's going to be a busy year for the Supreme Court. Um, two big issues. One, the health care law. They're going to be hearing that, uh, I believe, in March, and they will have to have the decision out by the end of June. Uh, a lot of religious groups are really interested in that, and conservative groups especially uh working actively against it. Um, but, you know, there's a lot of groups that are kind of caught in the middle. Uh, you know, the Catholic bishops, for example, they don't really like the law, but they're not going to actively work to, to overturn it. Uh, that's going to be, that's going to get a lot of uh, religious activists, particularly on the right, uh, really riled up. The other thing um, that the court just agreed to here is a challenge to immigration laws in the states. And they're mm-hmm. going to look at the law in Arizona, which was the first one out of the gate. But it all, there are also similar laws in Alabama and some other places. But these are really get-tough uh, immigration laws that a lot of churches have opposed mm-hmm. uh, because they feel that uh, it criminalizes their work with immigrants, whether they're legal or not. And some of the more draconian provisions of these laws have already been thrown out. But whether the Supreme Court allows states to kind of take the reins on immigration or if it's going to say, no, this is a federal responsibility, you've got to let Washington do it, um, a lot of religious groups are going to be watching that very carefully. I've been talking with Kevin Ekstrom, editor-in-chief of Religion News Service, the only secular news and photo service devoted to unbiased coverage of religion and ethics exclusively. The website is religionnews.com. Kevin, I know RNS marked 75 years of service during this past year, and we are so glad that you're going strong. We thank you for all of your help on the show all year long, and thank you again for being with us on State of Belief Radio today. Well, I'm happy to be here. We'll have a brand new website out in January that is going to sort of blow your socks off, so uh, be looking for that. And I'll be happy to come back on the show whenever you want me. We've got to take a short break, but coming right up, progressive religion hero Episcopal Bishop John Shelby Spong. Don't miss this. It's a historic interview. A reminder, extended versions and transcripts of most of our interviews are available online at stateofbelief.com. I'm Welton Gaddy. You're listening to State of Belief Radio, brought to you by Interfaith Alliance. Welcome back, everybody, to State of Belief Radio. I'm Welton Gaddy. Retired Episcopal Bishop John Shelby Spong led the Diocese of Newark for over a decade. Ordained in 1955, Bishop Spong has traveled the world sharing his vision for an inclusive theology that has enamored many and estranged others. As for me, I have found him challenging, enlightening, and inspiring. If you know his name, a likely reason is his important 1991 book, Rescuing the Bible from Fundamentalism. A bishop rethinks the meaning of Scripture. 
But Bishop Spong has written a number of books and has spent a great deal of time reaching out to people who've been alienated from religion by exclusionary and narrow-minded dogmas. Bishop Spong's latest book is called Reclaiming the Bible for a Non-Religious World, which was released by Harper One last month, and I am so very pleased that it brings Bishop John Shelby Spong back to State of Belief Radio. Bishop Spong, welcome. Thank you. Good to be with you, Ellen. Across the years, you've written several books related to the Bible. I remember so well that early book on the Bible and fundamentalism. Yep. Do you think people really pay much attention to the Bible? Well, uh, my books have sold over a million copies, so somebody's reading them. I think they may be reading you more than the Bible. <laughs> <laughs> There's some truth in that. Now, the Bible is a fascinating book. It's been used in very destructive ways throughout a great deal of our history. I tell people that I was raised in an evangelical Episcopal church in Charlotte, North Carolina. And that church taught me that segregation was the will of God, that women were inferior to men, that it was okay to hate other religions, and especially the Jews, and that homosexuals were either mentally sick or morally depraved. So that you either tried to convert them or cure them. And it quoted the Bible to prove all of those things. Well, if you want to be literal, I suppose you can find a text in the Bible that can prove almost anything. Uh, but the great sweep of the story of Scripture is about the dignity of human life, about expanding our humanity, about finding the image of God in people. And I don't know how you can do that if you're constantly diminishing them uh, and using some sort of religious source to justify your prejudices. Yeah. We know that on so many social issues, a lot of people who identify themselves as Bible believers elevate culture, tradition, self-interests over the teachings of the Bible. And I guess I'm interested in why you think on those issues, the Bible will take precedent for those people. Well, they also find in the Bible a text that can justify their continuing prejudices. Right. Uh, human life is not easy, Welton, and right. I think that's what uh, that's what people need to understand. So we're always looking for some kind of security blanket to wrap around us. Mm -hmm. And if you if you believe that you've got uh, the Word of God written in print that you can refer to, that's a pretty good source for going to get answers. Mm -hmm. And I think the church has encouraged that sort of mentality about the Bible. And it's a totally false mentality. There are things in the Bible you certainly don't want to blame on God. Mm -hmm. But we still, in church services, read the lessons, and at the end of the lessons we say something like, this is the word of the Lord, and people right. all say, thanks be to God. Mm -hmm. uh, we print the Bible in uh, two columns on each page, the way an encyclopedia is printed, or the dictionary is printed, mm -hmm. or a telephone book is printed. It's only the books I know of that are printed in two columns. Right. And all of them are presented to our world as sources of definitive information. Now, you don't argue with the dictionary, you don't argue with the uh, encyclopedia, you don't argue with the telephone directory, and presumably you're not supposed to argue with the Bible. Mm -hmm. but the only way you can maintain that point of view is to keep people abysmally ignorant about Holy Scripture. Right. And I think there's been a concerted effort on the part of uh, leadership people in the Christian church to do exactly that. We've got to take a short break, but we'll continue with Bishop John Shelby Spong in just a minute. Be right back. I'm Welton Gaddy. You're listening to State of Belief Radio. 
brought to you by Interfaith Alliance. This free State of Belief radio podcast is brought to you by Interfaith Alliance, representing 185,000 members across the U.S., drawn from 75 different faith traditions. We're committed to protecting faith and freedom. Find out about the work we do to protect the boundaries between religion and government and unite diverse voices to challenge extremism and build common ground by visiting our website, interfaithalliance.org. Whether you care deeply about minority religious rights, school bullying, LGBT discrimination, the influence of religion on politics, or the influence of politics on religion, Interfaith Alliance is working on initiatives you'll want to support. Learn more and become a member at interfaithalliance.org. Welcome back to State of Belief Radio. I'm Welton Gaddy. I'm talking with Bishop John Shelby Spong. His new book, Reclaiming the Bible for a Non-Religious World. Uh, I, I made a talk to the Hemlock Society several years ago, and that's the group of people that wants to, to wants to make a case for people having the right to determine if and when, or how and when they will die. I don't mm-hmm. guess there's any if about when we're going <laughs> to die. It's, it's going to happen to everybody. <laughs> But the justification and the anti-religious bias against the Hemlock Society or against end-of-life decisions is that life and death are issues that should be in God's hands and not in human hands. And yet, when you go to the Bible, I went and researched that book about all the things that you can do that the people take upon themselves the the power of executing you. That's the power of death. Mm-hmm. And there wouldn't be any of us alive if we'd still take that literally. You, if you talk back to your parents or willfully disobedient, you are to be executed. If you worship a false god, you are to be executed. If you're homosexual, you are to be executed. If you have sex with your mother-in-law, I thought that was a cute one, (laughs) you are to be executed. If you commit adultery, you are to be executed. There wouldn't be many people left in this world if we would follow that literally. And yet we still have this propaganda that when you hear the words of the Bible written, you are hearing the Word of God. Well, I just think we've got to counter that, and I think it's got to be countered by somebody within the church, mm-hmm. because somebody who's given up on the church, and nobody's going to pay any attention to the fact that they're Bible bashers. Right. Uh, you know, Richard Richard Dawkins, Christopher Hitchin, they'll sell a lot of books, but they're not going. They're not going to do much to the people in the church. The people in the church have got to be educated by competent biblical scholarship by those who have access to that biblical scholarship, yeah. and I think that's the job of the clergy. Absolutely. I hope that my books help in that capacity. And Bishop Spong, what's new in this book? What What have you said here that people who've read your books before uh, have well, that's not a good question, and I think a, a quite legitimate one. What this book was is that it actually started when I did a series of lectures in a resort community in the mountains of western North Carolina. And these were, were pretty well-heeled southern successful business people have summer homes. So it's a pretty affluent community. And they're pretty bright people. They're all university educated. Many of them uh, have uh, more degrees than just university degrees. They're CEOs, they're professors, they're doctors, they're dentists, they're lawyers. 
And yet, when they came into this resort community, as part of the entertainment, uh, we had a lecture series, and I did a series of lectures up there every year for about eight or nine years on the Bible and how it came to be written. And I found these brilliant people totally, totally unaware of the origins and history of the Bible. Mm. And, you know, they responded with such enthusiasm because they're right out of the Bible belt. Now, these aren't anti-Bible people. Most of them are church-going people. But I think they sort of stay on the fringes of the church because, uh, you know, a lot that goes on in church. You can't you can't wrap your brain around with any integrity. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the God who's out to get you is a very big idea. That the God who killed Jesus because you were a sinner, that's a pretty big idea. And that's a pretty mm-hmm. gross idea, too. Yeah. But I found that once you could begin to scrape the Bible of this layer of mentality that I don't think people believe, though they might say they believe it, uh, then they found the Bible a pretty exciting story. I think it. I think the Bible is deep in the in the life of Western civilization. Mm-hmm. And if you lose the Bible, you're going to lose the sense of human dignity. You're going to lose the sense that every life is unique and precious. Uh, you know, if we're nothing more than animals, then you can do all sorts of social engineering. But if we're human beings created in the image of God and loved by God, then you've got to begin to treat every human life with dignity and with respect. And so I want to keep that that very powerful idea abroad in our society, because I think that we're on the edge of, uh, of beginning to live in a, in a society that is so godless that we don't pay any attention to the dignity of human life if human life is a bit inconvenient. Mm. Well, it's a great description of, of the importance of not only reading your book, but reading uh, the Bible and studying it as well. Bishop Spong, how should people who reverence and follow the Bible as their authority respond to individuals, Muslims, for example, who turn to a different source of authority, such as the Quran? Well, you know, one of the one of the sad things about every religion in the world is that that all of us claim that we are the one true faith. Now, if you are, if you are the one true faith, then you have a hard time admitting that there's another possibility out there that might challenge you for the position of one true faith. Sort of like the Germans during the Nazi era were quite sure that Aryan humanity was the most superior kind of humanity, and one of the ways they proved it was to try to annihilate another group of people who are very substantially uh, powerful in terms of of their competence, namely the Jewish people. So I think one of the things you've got to face is that the fact is that there's no such thing as the one true faith. There's no such thing as one true church. There's no such thing as one way to God. Uh, And yet that's in all of our traditions. That's why the Pope has to be infallible. That's why the Bible has to be inerrant. That's why you've got to maintain that you have the one true faith and that nobody can come to God except through your faith. That's idolatry. You know, what human being knows the mind of God so powerfully that we can legislate for who who can enter into God's presence and, and how God is to be understood? That's nothing except idolatry. Mm-hmm. And yet it, it feeds the need in human life to find some sort of certainty and some sort of security. And I think the Christian church has played into that human mentality. I don't believe that that Christianity or any other religion is designed to give us peace of mind or to convince us that we possess the truth. I think what Christianity, and I can speak for that more than I can speak for anything else, I think what Christianity is designed to give us is the courage to live in a world of relativity, 
and in a world of colliding values, and not to fall apart, and hmm. to embrace the insecurity of life, and to continue to put one foot forward in front of the other, and continue to walk into the unknown. It takes an awful lot of courage to be human. And I think Christianity has shifted over the, in the past few centuries from giving us the security, uh, giving us the ability to embrace insecurity without falling apart, to pretending that it can give us security. And when you get to the church, to the time where religion pretends to give you security, then you've got to batten down your hatches and demonstrate that you've got it. That's when the Pope becomes infallible. That's when the Bible becomes the Word of God. And I think we've slipped at that point into an idolatrous understanding that is beyond the capacity of human beings to interpret the mind of God. What incredible folly Mm. uh, that is for us to claim. Yeah. We've got to take a short break, but we'll continue with Bishop John Shelby Spong. I'm Welton Gaddy. You're listening to State of Belief Radio, brought to you by Interfaith Alliance. Welcome back to State of Belief Radio. I'm Welton Gaddy. I'm talking with Bishop John Shelby Spong, his new book, Reclaiming the Bible for a Non-Religious World. Bishop Spong, you have, in my opinion, courageously as well as forthrightly and insightfully confronted Christians with a new vision of Christianity. Uh, One of your most widely read books and most appreciated from me uh, was the book that argued that Christianity must change or die. I'm curious, do you feel that you have been heard? How do you feel about your influence? Well, again, I think you need to take a fairly long-range view. Uh, Certainly, I've been an uncomfortable presence to some who are sort of traditional in their thinking because they don't really want to change. I had one pastor that came up to me and said, my church, if they had a choice, would always vote to die before they voted to change. <laughs> and the ability to change is very slight in in uh, organized religion, again, because it feeds into our security system. And even, you know, the Episcopal Church revises its prayer book about every 50 years, and the whole, current, whole church goes into apoplexy about this, <laughs> but we always sort of live through it. And the fact is that we change the prayer book because the way we perceive reality has changed. If you go back to the old prayer book of the 17th and 18th century, that's before people knew there were such things as germs and viruses or or cardiovascular accidents. We didn't understand much about medicine. We bled people when they were ill, hoping to get the evil spirits out of them. Uh, And so the prayers, sickness was interpreted as the punishment of God for your evil. So the prayers of, for the sick were to give you to confess your sins so that God could forgive you and God would stop punishing you with leukemia or whatever God was punishing you with. Now, that's a pretty weird idea today. But what we're doing today is that I live in a world where the earth is not the center of the universe, where miracle and magic is hardly a category that we use. We explain everything that the ancient world used to explain as miracle or magic in quite non-miraculous language. We used to think that human beings were created perfect 
and fell into sin. We call that original sin. So the whole human race has been infected. And what we need to do is to be rescued by the external God and lifted back to the perfection for which we were originally created. Mm-hmm. What do you do with Darwin? Darwin says there's no such thing as a perfect creation, that we are in a process of evolving. And if you have never been perfect, you can't fall into sin. So original sin has simply got to go. And then the whole way of telling the Jesus story is the rescuer of the fallen, or the savior of the sinful, or the redeemer of the lost, becomes inoperative. So how do we tell the Jesus story? I think we tell the Jesus story as the expander of life. And we cast the the Christian message in a very positive and I would call a humanistic direction. And I think that's exactly the direction that it, it should go in. Yeah. If you read the fourth gospel, and that's my present study, and if I write another book, it's going to be on the fourth gospel. But if you read the fourth gospel, it's a gospel about life. It's not a gospel about religion. The purpose right. of Jesus is to bring life and to bring it abundantly. Yeah. Uh, John's gospel ends up in the conclusion by saying, these things are written that you might have life. Uh, I think that's where the focus of the Christian church has got to be. We've got to get rid of sin and begin to focus on life. Now, I don't mean to suggest, and I'm always there's always a quick fundamentalist who's ready to say this, I don't mean to say that there's not a great deal of human evil. I think human beings can be as, as evil as any creature, far more evil than the animals to one another. And animals don't do genocide. Human beings do genocide. Animals don't become alcoholics. Mm-hmm. Human beings become alcoholics. Uh, but I think that, that what we have called sin is simply the baggage of our evolutionary history, that uh, we are survival-oriented creatures. And as we make our survival the highest value of our lives, that means we're radically self-centered. I think what Christianity has got to do is to take us in our survival-oriented mentality and lift us beyond it into the capacity to live fully and even to give our lives away. And that's when I think we can tell the Jesus story in a much more powerful way. Needless to say, and I love I love what you're saying, but it has caused a lot of critics. It has developed a lot of people who think you ought to be out of the church rather than in the church. Yep. I'm curious, how do you respond to your critics? Well, I hope I outlive them and outlove them uh, more than anything else. Uh, and maybe maybe not in that order. I think it's better outlive love them first and then outlive them. And I don't mean just by living longer. Oh, I mean by living in a quality relationship. Right. I think that that's just that's the best way to deal with your critics. Right. And most of the criticism, Welton, it's come to me, has not been on theology because I don't think people think about that that much. Uh-huh. The, the place I've gotten hostility, and I've had 16 valid death threats in my life, but they've come uh, out of the struggle for human justice. They've come out of participation in the civil rights movement. They've come out of walking with women and breaking down the barriers against women. They've come with walking with gay and lesbian people and breaking down the barriers. That's where the hostilities come yeah. from. I don't know a lot of people that want to argue a great deal about the creeds. And I can tell you that within the last three months, I've delivered major addresses at three theological seminaries. And what I've done is to say, we've got to get rid of words like Savior, Redeemer, and Rescuer to describe Jesus, because that's based on an anthropology that's pre-Darwinian, and it makes absolutely no sense in a post-Darwinian world. And besides that, it's not even biblical. The word Savior doesn't appear in the biblical story until Luke's gospel, which would be the ninth decade 
and it appears in the Magnificat, the song that Mary sings, Mm -hmm. and she's talking about God, my Savior, not about Jesus. Savior is not a New Testament word. And yet that's what we've done, and we've done this idea of Jesus as the Savior based upon, I think, bad anthropology of saying that what we are is fallen sinners. I don't think we're fallen sinners. I think we're incomplete human beings. I want you to know that some people will be listening to this conversation on Christmas Day, and so I want to ask what Christmas message do you have to share with us this year? I think the beauty of Christmas is that that the claim that's being made is that it is in human life that God and humanity come together. If you want to be divine, you have to become deeply and fully human. The pathway into divinity is to become fully human. And I think that's what the the Christmas story is about. I don't think it has a thing to do with biology. I think it has to do with people had an experience in a man named Jesus of Nazareth that convinced them that he called them to a dimension of humanity that human beings alone could never have created. And so in order to tell that story, they developed the mythology of the virgin birth because they lived in the first century. They didn't understand about reproduction. Uh, They thought that the whole life of the human being was in the sperm of the male. They thought the male simply planted that life in the womb of the female and she nurtured it like a farmer plants his seed in the soil of Mother Earth and Mother Earth nurtures them. And, but that's the way we understood life. In 1724, we discovered that women had an egg cell. That was a brand new discovery. And that means that from that moment on, you can't tell the story of the virgin birth. It doesn't make sense. Because what you have at that point is that every life is the creation of a male and female, a sperm and an egg that go together. And so even Jesus of Nazareth has to receive 50% of his uh, genetic code from his mother. And, and you know, the Roman Church had a hard time with that because they had, had this doctrine of, of original sin. And the reason that Mary could be the mother of Jesus is that she didn't pass on the sin of Adam to Jesus and he could be born as the sinless one. Well, that doesn't work after you understand uh, that women have an egg cell. And that's why we had to declare Mary immaculately conceived in the 18th century so that she could still be the, the mother of the sinless one. Christianity adapts to knowledge. It doesn't do it comfortably, but it does it if it has people within the church who love the church and are willing to take on the flack to keep the church relevant to the modern world. And I think that's a that's a vocation. And I just love Christmas. I think it's a beautiful and wonderful season, and I think people ought to celebrate it with gusto. This is Bishop John Shelby Spong, and let me say Uh, On behalf of a lot of people, certainly what's true for me, uh, we are appreciative of the work that you've done and the work that you continue to do. Uh, I consider what you've been talking about today the, the essence of the meaning of gospel, which is good news. And I don't know anyone who speaks it uh, better than you do. Well, I appreciate that. And, uh, I just think we've got a good story to tell, and you've got to tell it outside the boundaries of the religious traditions of yesterday, which I think are dying. And I don't think Christianity is to die with these old traditions. I think it's still got a great future. Bishop Spong, I'm grateful to you for being able to be with us today on State of Belief and hope to talk with you again. Thank you. Look forward to that. That's all the time we have for this week's show. I really like what we did today, and I hope you did too. 
Uh, This represents what I think is the best of State of Belief Radio and what we try to do every week on the show, bringing together different elements from different phases of our lives, different sectors of our professions, and looking at what that means for religion and politics and other concerns that all of us share comes from a perspective of faith in some instances, a perspective of non-faith in others. But whatever our differences and whatever the differences of our guests, we find ways to stand on common ground and talk with civility about our differences. I would hope that our world could learn to do the same thing. Please visit us online at stateofbelief.com. To find out more about the show, hear extended interviews, read transcripts, sign up for our podcast. You can learn about the new State of Belief app for iPhone and Android devices, so you can listen to it anywhere, anytime. Share your thoughts on what you've heard on Facebook and on Twitter. Contact information is available at stateofbelief.com, including the toll-free listener line 800-856-0277. We encourage you to tell others about the show and encourage them to listen to. Listen, take that Bishop Spong interview from today, play it for some of your friends, and then talk about traditional Christianity and what's changing. State of Belief Radio is a production of Interfaith Alliance. Become a member today at interfaithalliance.org. And join us next week for more stories from the intersection of religion, government, and politics. Until then... Whatever your religion or attitude toward religion, have a joyful holiday season, and you all take care of each other. I'm Welton Gaddy, that state of belief. The only one who could ever reach me was the son of a preacher man. The only boy who could ever teach me was the son of a preacher man. You see, Welton.